This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Le Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, and a speech by Tim Wise. And a note that if this episode begins to make you feel uncomfortable, that just means it's working. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the new Iraq. There's been so much breast beating in the wake of the 10th anniversary of shock and awe. But uh, here's somebody doing something else to his breast. Michael Knights in foreignpolicy.com in uh, reporting. And um, this echoes what we've been reading this week. As recently as Friday, 76, I think, casualties in attacks and bombings on Sunni targets following a wave of bombings of Shiite targets. Can I say that on the radio? Targets? Anyway, Michael Knights reports, in the latest bout of sectarian and ethnic bloodletting, coordinated bomb attacks ripped through Shiite neighborhoods in Baghdad and northern Iraq, killing more than 30 people. This, of course, was before the attacks on the Sunnis. The spasm of violence followed clashes between the Iraqi army and Sunni protesters and insurgents last month when the federal government temporarily lost control of some town centers and urban neighborhoods. Negative indicators abound in Iraq. Armed civilian militias are reactivating. Tit-for-tat bombings are targeting Sunni and Shiite mosques. Some Iraqi military forces are breaking down into ethnic sectarian components or suffering from chronic absenteeism. Numerous segments of Iraq's body politic, Kurdish, Sunni, Arab, and Shia, are exasperated over the government's inability to address political or economic inequities. They're talking seriously about partition. Hello, Joe Biden. Uh, in late April, the federal military miscalculated when it raided a protest site in the northern town of Hawija, and that turned into a bloody firefight with scores of civilians killed. This event has the potential, says Knights to become a, an iconic rallying call for insurgent groups such as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, hello, and the neo-Baathist Naqshbandi movement. The resurgence of violence since 2010 is shown very clearly in the metrics used to gauge the strength of the insurgency. The Washington Institute for Near East Policy's Iraq Violence Database has tracked violence since 2004, in the first quarter of 2011, monthly attacks bottomed out at 358. By the first quarter of 2012, the average monthly attacks had risen to 539. By the first quarter of this year, 804. Anti-U.S. targeting has been replaced with Iraq, uh, Iraqi on Iraqi violence. Former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq Ryan Crocker views the current period as a return to conditions of 2006 and 2007 when Iraq plunged into civil war-like violence. You think this has anything to do with the fact that the money that General David Petraeus paid the Sunnis to stop fighting has run out and the government jobs he promised them have failed to materialize? You think? The Iraqi government has tried to deflect blame for its own failing on the Syrian uprising, arguing it was suffering from this spillover of violence next door, but 
The upswing in violence cannot be ascribed solely to ancient Sunni Shia hatreds. The embers of sectarianism were stoked back into life by the Baghdad government's unwillingness to meet demands for an end to the collective punishment of Sunnis for the crimes of the Saddam Hussein regime. That was, I think, a legacy of J. Paul Bremer, wasn't it? Anyway, Donald, in the wake of all this, or ignoring all this, Donald Rumsfeld is making the rounds again, flogging a new book. You remember him, don't you? As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Here is a country that's being liberated. Stuff happens, and it's untidy, and freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes. As you know, uh, you go to war with the army you have, and not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. The army? Calling Dr. Freud. Anyway, Donald Rumsfeld was on a public radio program this week talking about his new book, in which he outlines his rules for leadership. Rumsfeld's rules, I started collecting uh, because my mom was a school teacher. And I was a youngster, and if I didn't know the meaning of a word, she'd say, well, write it down and look it up. And then I started writing down various other thoughts and rules and ideas and anecdotes. And so I've always carried a three-by-five card. And uh, I've got now, I think, close to 300 rules. And they're not all mine, obviously. They're from people a lot smarter than I am. Oh, please. Nobody's smarter than you are. Here's proof. We know... What we know, we think we know, what we don't know, but if we don't know, what we don't know. Stuff happens, our intel. It was bulletproof. We had the bullets, just not the proof. Our bullets, they proved what bullets prove. Stuff happens. Freedom can be untidy For years, Iraq has been untidy So why do you hate their freedom? Stuff Otherwise, you need another army. 
Has anybody seen the the Cheney documentary on uh, Showtime that's airing? It's on this this Friday, I think. So I haven't seen it. I'm going to watch it this <coughs> Friday. Yeah. Uh, but I did see the guy on the. Uh, he was on the uh, this week with uh, George Snuffleupagus. They were talking about the, uh, and um, he. Well, I'm going to play a clip from the documentary. This is Dick Cheney talking about using torture to uh, keep America safe, right? And this is what he has to say about it. It's it's pretty wild. Tell me what uh, terrorist attacks is that you would have let go forward uh, because uh, you didn't want to be a mean and nasty fella. Are you going to trade the lives of a number of people because you want to preserve your, your honor? Or are you going to do your job, do what's required, first and foremost, your responsibility to safeguard uh, the United States of America and the lives of its citizens? Okay, I just want to point out that Dick Cheney Five deferment Dick Cheney never was a Marine. And so now he's, now he's saying the way you fight a war is you let go of your honor. But if he knew the, if he was actually ever in the service, he would know that their motto is death before dishonor. <coughs> and so what he's saying is you get rid of your honor first thing you do when you go to war. That's from a guy who's never been to war. And that's from a guy who ordered war crimes. And so he's giving us this, what he's saying is that it was his duty to order war crimes and those among us who would not have ordered war crimes are irresponsible and derelict in their duty they're just not committed to doing what needs to be done that's not a false choice is it either we torture people or millions of americans get killed that's what he's saying that was his right there so then, well, then why didn't we why didn't we torture nazis then that's what you i know, they they had the same plan they wanted to take us over they wanted to engulf the world in darkness, they wanted to kill every Jew on the planet. Why didn't we? Uh, why didn't we torture them? Uh, Frank, they weren't brown. <laughs> because we didn't need to torture. So here's well. Is here- there oil in Germany? 
I just think it's it, his argument is that honor is a luxury. Doing what is right is a luxury, and anybody who is really responsible is willing to become a Nazi for their country. Hey, be a grown up, be a Nazi. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you're not willing to become a Nazi and torture people in war, then you're not grown up enough. You you are uh, some kind of hippie who doesn't know the real world, like Dick Cheney, even though he's never been to war. Okay, so here's what the but here's what the documentarian. This is why I'm really playing this because we all know that about Dick Cheney. But here's the right. documentarian. Here's what he says that he was struck. He was struck by what were you struck by? What's his struck by his comparison of uh, honor and duty when he was talking about enhanced interrogation and his his really his dismissal of honor as a value in the face of duty okay so again he wasn't a soldier never did but i think he's missing the point and it'll be more clear here does not this. feel that there, here, here's here's it'll be more clear in this clip here's here's the documentary does not feel that there's room for compromise and that that uh, compromise is a quality that a strong leader has. And, uh, and I think that it raises the question of when total conviction serves a democracy and when it can be problematic for a democracy. Okay, so I'm just going to make this point. This guy who got to do a documentary on Dick Cheney doesn't understand why Dick Cheney did what he did or the fact that Dick Cheney, when he says that thing about honor and duty, is lying. He's not actually telling him how he feels. And this guy is making the mistake of thinking, wow, this guy's really, it's the, it's the Rick Santorum defense. He really believes it. So it's yeah, okay. He has great conviction. Yeah. He, he's, he's, but, he's talking about it in a way that we have to, even if we disagree yes. with Dick Cheney, we have to admire him. His conviction for, for, for doing for war crimes. A strong conviction. For having a strong conviction of, do, of committing war crimes. But, what he's missing is that you're being lied to by Dick Cheney, you documentarian. He doesn't really have that conviction. He doesn't have any idea about honor or duty. The reason why Dick Cheney ordered torture was to get those guys to give him cover for an illegal war that he was starting to put to fill the pockets of his friends. That's why he, yeah. that's why it's, he, when he goes, I was struck by his uh, dismissal of honor because it's not a real dismissal of honor. Because it's not real conviction. Because what Dick Cheney is doing is lying to you about why he ordered torture. He didn't order torture to keep us safe or because he cared about America or Americans dying. He couldn't care less. He ordered torture to get those terrorists or those people who were being held to admit that Saddam Hussein was in cahoots with the 9-11 hijackers. And they wouldn't say it. So that's why they tortured them. You don't torture people again information you torture people to get people to say stuff that you want them to say and this documentarian completely misses that point and pretends that dick cheney is pulling a rick santorum and being real he's really convinced of his convictions that you can't break and that's it that's i can't believe people still believe dick cheney actually believes what he's saying but isn't that the problem when people are, let's say you, you, uh, have a moral compass, you believe that somebody else who's in a position right. of authority would also have a moral compass. Right. And when he uses the term about honor, I think yes. that is so ironic because he's trying to hook this term like honor, yeah. okay. But you know what? 
I said no to honor. Yeah, somehow he said he makes honor sound like herpes. It's like it's like, like saying oh, you Paul got, Ryan was brave for for suggesting we destroy Medicare. The, yeah, Medicare. hey, really, yes, really brave. Wow, it's to, brave of you to <laughs> throw out every basic piece of humanity. <laughs> thousands upon thousands of people have died to protect. Uh, God bless you. But the reason why Dick. Well, this, uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that this um, uh, documentary guy. I'm very um, wary of him and skeptical about the documentary, and I'm afraid that watching it is going to get me really pissed off because the very fact that Dick Cheney allowed this guy to interview him <laughs> yeah. makes me question, yes. his, you know, question his validity as, in, as a documentary. And, and he, ta he tried to tell George Nuffleupagus how hard it was for him to get it and how he just kept trying. And it's like, <clears throat> no, he knew after a while that you believed him. He knew that you yeah. weren't skeptical of the, the real reason why he ordered tour. I mean, how if dumb do you have? And <laughs> you know, if Dick, if you look at all the interviews he's done over the few years, it, it's been with like very subservient suck-up people like either Fox or Politico. If Dick Cheney agrees to do an interview with you, that doesn't speak very well of you right. as a journalist. Right, it does not speak well of you. So yeah, I'm going to watch that documentary. I'll, I'm going to TiVo it and well, watch it. Well, nothing ever happened to Dick Cheney when he came out and said straight out, I'm okay with torture. Yes, I ordered torture. I ordered waterboarding. And he, would you do it again? Yes, mm -hmm. I would. There was a review in the New York Times today of this documentary, and it made me not want to see it. No kidding. It just says that she's that the guy the, the guy doesn't ask any follow up questions, and he just lets Dick Cheney go on and on, and they and they intercut it with interviews with other people. But um, it's I, I mean I'm sure I'm going to watch it, but I'm I'm really kind of not looking forward. To it's it. it's just I just can't believe how gullible you could be. Well, what what really bothers me at the end of the clip is the pretension of him saying, like, it really creates questions about... Yes. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it no, doesn't. No, it doesn't. Exactly. It, 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 I mean, you're, you're, you're assigning a false uh, patina of artisticness to something right. that, at, at best, is just a document of what a horrible human being this man is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And doesn't he describe his actions as if, you know, like, honorable or have to live with nasty and mean? He says, That's, he goes, who, whose lives, how many, how many Americans' lives would you trade for your honor? That's a false choice. You don't have to do... Somehow, again, we beat the Japanese, we beat yeah. the, the, the Nazis, we beat the Italians, we beat everybody back without doing any of that stuff, officially. They go, you don't think... I, here's another thing that people do. They go, you don't think that we didn't torture anybody in World War II? And what I say to those people on Facebook is, if you have a link of some torture that we were aware of and we didn't prosecute, I'd love to see it. But until then, you're just speculating and talking out of your ass. This is torture that we know of that was ordered <coughs> at the tippy top of government. This wasn't a couple of guys in the field somewhere who decided to waterboard somebody. Right. This was the President yeah. of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of State, all signing off on torture. And, and by the way, while all of their field personnel were saying no, torture does not yeah. yield good information. Why would yeah. you ask us to do this? Right. But they but never they, served you, in the you, military. You, that's why they were you okay with torture. It, you say it never happened in World War II, but what about the inglorious bastard? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me, you know what, this guy Ben um, Shapiro. By the, way, by the way, you know, torture was used pretty extensively by the CIA in Vietnam. We lost that war. <laughs> yeah. 
Right, and it, and and I don't even Nixon wouldn't come out and brag about ordering a war crime. I don't think. Okay, they still they used to be kind of afraid of it. They used to be anyway. So, um, but they did he learn from Nixon. They learned they learned Frank that from Nixon. What what Dick Cheney learned is that the real trouble you get in is when you try to cover it up. So what he started doing was admitting it immediately. And that was yeah, that. Yeah. And they start admitting it. Story's over. There's no story. They admit, yeah, I ordered it. But when you have a when you have a complacent media, yes, that's, that's not willing to portray you as a war criminal, and none of, and you know, people who describe Bush and Cheney as war criminals in the mainstream media are considered on the fringe. Yes, the, uh, mainly because the mainstream <laughs> media helped. Uh, they could yes. have fought these phony wars without the mainstream media. So Dick Cheney lives in an environment where he's not called out on it, so he can go. And be interviewed by these people and say, "Yeah, I, um, I, you know, I think torture is great," and and there won't be any kind of major outrage about it. It won't be the first thing that you see on the news. It, there won't be a call to have him investigated and prosecuted. He so the, it's the it's, it's it's the environment that he lives in. To get back to the point, when the president says that our Constitution has withstood all these wars, it, it absolutely hasn't. And the number one uh, cause of illness, some would say death, to the U.S. Constitution has been wars, both hot and cold. Um, there is no Fourth Amendment anymore. No one should pretend that there is, and that's the war on terror. Um, finishing off something that another cold war, the war on drugs, um, probably started. The president talked about... Um, bringing the troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan as though we could hold our head up high because we, we went in there, we did the job, and now people are coming home and the job is finished when in fact, let's, and listen, I, I want to phrase this the right way because there are a lot of veterans who listen to this show and a lot of veterans who don't, but it doesn't matter. I mean, those people gave their all in these conflicts and it's not their fault the way it turns out just like it's not their fault the way vietnam turned out but let's not sugarcoat this you know for compassionate reasons folks we are leaving iraq every bit as bad as we found it and people don't like to hear that folks 500 people have been killed in sectarian attacks in iraq this week we told you well, we told you years ago. We've been telling you for years. And, and every time I mention it, soldiers that were recently in Iraq always write me and say, Dan, that's exactly how we feel. We're on the ground there. We say blah, blah, blah. But, folks, again, you don't have to be a genius. It's there for everyone to see. Iraq is a country much like the former Yugoslavia was, a country made up of peoples that, while they all claim to be proud Iraqis, really don't want to live with each other unless they can control the whole show. And they're not going to. And 
if you recall the surge, remember when we had the famous surge in Iraq and we went in there because Iraq was descending into a civil war and we managed to quell the violence and sort of do a reset so everybody would just calm down for a while. That was the American version of what a Saddam Hussein had to do in that region perpetually. The same thing a Joseph Tito had to do in Yugoslavia. The reason you get these iron-fisted dictators in some of these countries, sometimes, is because they're the only ones that can keep those countries together. And they do it with a brutality that is appalling, but those countries wouldn't be together without it. Because somebody will bomb something, which will create a cycle of violence. You'll see it when Sunnis will bomb a Shiite shrine, or Shiites will bomb a Sunni church in retaliation. And once you get this revenge thing going, these people have extremely long memories. All the people in the Middle East do. And they can hearken back to the last time someone did something bad to them or the time before that. And no one ever has figured out who did the first, who cast the first stone. But the minute a bunch of people die, it's on again, right? And we're hearkening back to wounds from 20, 30, 50, 200 years ago. It doesn't matter. Keeping Iraq together is probably going to require the same sort of person that we spent years, blood, and treasure throwing out of that country. If that's the case, ladies and gentlemen, why did we do that? And was it valuable? And listen, to the credit of the first President Bush administration, there was a reason that those pragmatists in that administration, when the first Gulf War happened, didn't go into Iraq because they said it was going to be just like it is. And it was the second Bush administration with their cowboy mentality and their neoconservatives were going to be welcomed with flowers and all that, who basically went 180 degrees against you know, and, and by the way, slamming the elder Bush's advisors when they did, and, you know, who's turning out to be right now? The president also said that, you know, bringing the troops home from Afghanistan and all this and all that. Well, folks, listen, let's remember something. And Gwyn Dyer, who we had on this program, um, military historian Gwen Dyer, pointed this out a long time ago. Actually, we had Dyer on the history show, didn't we, Ben? Dyer pointed out that, you know, when the 9-11 attacks happened... And we sent special forces and operations into Afghanistan to start clearing out um, al-Qaeda-related forces. They did a great job. They did a great job. There was perhaps no reason at all to put boots on the ground in one of the most troubling, nefarious, infamous places to put boots on the ground in the world. But we did anyway. And now we're pulling them out of that area. And we're going to end up almost certainly with exactly what was in that area before we put boots on the ground. So what did we accomplish? And what is that, folks? Let's let's explain where the error there was. We went in to Afghanistan to get al-Qaeda and in the process involved ourselves in a war with the Taliban. And Americans don't know who the Taliban is. The Taliban is a, you know, we act like it's some, some glorified terrorist group, and they certainly are fundamentalists, and they believe women should be in burqas and all these kinds of things, and, you know, uh, uh, seen in public showing your legs, and we're going to beat you with iron rods and all these things. I mean, it's awful, awful people by Western standards. But this isn't the West, folks, and I'm not sure we can impose our values on these people, especially if they don't want them. And it's, and, and it's hard to know what they want because the people that fight the Taliban, the people that used to be part of what's called the Northern Alliance, aren't all that good either, right? The Taliban are, for the most part, 
a group of ethnic tribes and the Northern Alliance is groups of other ethnic tribes. When we decided that because the Taliban didn't immediately hang Osama bin Laden or hand him over to us, that they were part of the problem, we essentially declared war against millions and millions and millions of ethnic peoples in various tribes in that region. It's no wonder we didn't win. Those people, as soon as we leave the region, are going to pick up where they left off, which is going to be driving on Kabul. Now, understand something. The policy in Afghanistan is essentially an updated and glorified version of what we did in Vietnam when we pulled out of South Vietnam. That program was named by the Nixon administration Vietnamization. The training of local forces so that they could defend the region themselves. I think everyone who's been there knows very well how that's working out. As a matter of fact, um, many of our soldiers don't want to train and be alongside the Afghan soldiers because some of them are not on our side. And on multiple occasions, they've killed our troops. Um, but again, it's not, it, I'm not blaming the Afghans for this. This is the nature of the conflict there. Welcome to the guerrilla war, right? We shouldn't have done this to begin with. We're pulling out of there now. We're going to have some bases. We're going to use air power and forces like that to try to, you know, aid the Afghan national forces on the ground. But we've seen this movie before, ladies and gentlemen, and it ended with U.S. helicopters, you know, pulling off of the embassy with locals trying to hold on, you know, to the struts and open doors of the helicopter i mean this is it's not going to end well so when the president says these things it it's part of this idea that instead of re-examining whether we should have done this to begin with which is what intelligent people and intelligent powers do we're going to pretend like we did the right thing and now it's you know peace with honor when in reality we should look at both those occasions and go hmm what can we learn from iraq and what can we learn from our experience in afghanistan and how can we avoid losing that kind of blood and treasure again. And this is not even to mention, you know, the damage that we've done to the locals in that region. That goes without saying, right? Could be a 100,000 Iraqis dead. Which brings me to the next point that the president was making. And he was schizophrenic on this point. You know, he, he deserves credit for making one half of it. And then he deserves criticism for not realizing that the second part of what he said is directly contradicted by the first part. The first part was where he talked about the damage that these airstrikes that we do in the region, the damage that American boots on the ground and the presence in the region has done in terms of fostering antagonism towards America and as a terrorist recruitment tool. The president was very smart when he talked about these things. You know, when he said, listen, um, you know, Al-Qaeda... And similar forces, and he mentioned some of the Al-Qaeda splinter groups, use the drone strikes and the deaths of civilians and all this stuff as recruiting tools. Basically pointing out what, again, we all know, Chalmers Johnson did a bunch of good works before he died on this, but there's a lot of others, where, I mean, it's common sense. If somebody killed your family, how upset would you be about it? I mean, there's there are times when you can put yourself in the other guy's shoes and see clearly what's going on. We kill a bad guy. You know, because they're a bad guy, and we kill several other people when we kill the bad guy. And the families, friends, loved ones, and everything of the bad guys we killed and their friends are then mad at us forever after. If they become terrorists, it's like fighting the Hydra in ancient Greek mythology. Do you remember the Hydra? The Hydra was like a giant dragon with multiple heads. And the problem with the multiple heads were when you cut one off, 
multiple heads grew in its place. When you kill these terrorists, especially when you kill people who are not terrorists at the same time, you create more angry people who are willing to sometimes die to avenge those losses. It gets back to that whole idea about how the Middle Easterners tend to have long memories anyway, and yet it's the same way Americans would feel if somebody killed your relatives from another country. You'd be pretty mad, wouldn't you? Human nature. But then the president goes on to say, we're going to keep doing these things. Drone strikes are going to be done. We're just going to make sure they're more targeted. But this is now, this is where we get into where the president's not being really truthful. I mean, basically, he's talking about these drone strikes as though, you know, he'll say things like, well, we're going to make sure that there's due process for, you know, when we go after, uh, especially Americans, but we're going to have, you know, the same sorts of, what was the exact word, Ben? He said, we're going to have the same sorts of safeguards for foreign folks as we would for Americans. Sounds great in speeches, doesn't it, folks? And you'll talk about, throw around phrases like due process because that's a constitutional phrase. That's a human right as the American Constitution views it, right? It's not something that the Constitution gives you. It's something that it enunciates and enumerates, okay? You have a right to due process. What the administration has done, folks, that's sneaky, scary, and disingenuous is they've changed what due process means. The president and his people have reclassified due process so that if he has a debate in the executive branch in secret with he and people who he appointed and who owe him for their jobs, that's the same as putting you in front of a jury or a judge, which, of course, is nonsense. But it allows the president then to say, you know, we're giving everybody due process and we're uh, sticking to the foundation of the constitutional framers and all that. But all he's done is change what the word means. You know, that's like calling torture enhanced interrogation and saying, we don't torture people. Well, do you enhanced interrogate them? Oh, yeah, but that's not torture. It's the same thing that we talk about when we say today, we don't torture people anymore. And you'll hear the Obama administration say, we don't torture people. No, but we send them to countries who torture them for us and then phone us on the telephone and tell us what they said. Now, you tell me. Is that something that allows you to look in the mirror and say that we are living up to the standards set by the myth of America because we didn't do the actual shocking of their genitals with the car battery? Someone else did. Is that enough plausible deniability to shake your responsibility for it as a taxpayer? Itty-bitty economies based on geography fueled by spectators and their money and their need for things that will not last. <laughs> Go on, build a hotel, a gift shop in the wilderness. <laughs> Making a profit, capitalizing on it, and all the while trampling on everything that is sacred, and it all was stars to Masons. Why the Western man destroys things he doesn't understand, uh huh. It all starts to make sense. All these patterns and wasteful destructive practices. Uh-huh. I've been talking about doing this for some time. I'm gonna, I'm, I just want to get into the issue of peace. Consider, you know, the, this war that George W. Bush has brought us, this kind of never-ending war and all this kind of thing, and just, just wanted to talk about peace. John Kennedy gave a speech at Michigan State University back when I was a kid. I wasn't there and didn't hear it, but... It's, you know, we have a recording of it. And he talked about peace. Here he is. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds. 
and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. The most important topic on earth. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Peace in all time. And, you know, what was Kennedy talking about when he was talking about this piece? This is, in my opinion, one of his best speeches ever. I mean, he devoted this entire speech to peace. He, he in this speech, and I'll play, I'll play more of it after the, after the break, uh, he talks about supporting the United Nations. He talks about there, there is literally no country, no people who are so evil that they don't deserve some respect from us, and that they don't deserve peace. It, it was a complete repudiation of George W. Bush's whole, you know, we're going to get them, we're going to kill them, we're going we're gonna to bomb, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, the whole thing. A complete repudiation of, of that doctrine. It's an absolutely brilliant speech that... I think we need to hear again as we're looking at the possibility of worldwide conflict in this moment. We'll be back with more. Welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you 20 minutes past the hour. Uh, John Kennedy, I just, you know, for a few minutes here, just let's step into the Wayback Machine. Given all the conflicts around the world, given, well, you know, President Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize. In anticipation, I would submit, that he was going to wind down and end George Bush's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, unnecessary illegal wars that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, the displacement and dis destroying the lives of millions of people, generations of birth defects and post-traumatic stress disorder and families ripped apart, and, and an entire region that has learned to hate America because of the actions of, of this you know, small cabal of war criminals in the George W. Bush administration. But Jack Kennedy, uh, back in the 1960s, this was uh, 19, uh, June 10th, 1963, right around this time, you know, the, the summer of 1963, pushing back, and, and it actually, 63, that was uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 63, that'd be 50 years ago, yeah, uh, pushing back on the idea of war, here he is. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary, rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. And there really is no more urgent task, and we need to... No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. Yet we killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants 
and purely rhetorical hostility. At least they were until John Paul. For we can seek a relaxation of tensions without relaxing our guard. And for our part, we do not need to use threats to prove we are resolute. Uh, unless you're George Bush. Meanwhile, we seek to strengthen the United Nations to help solve its financial problems, to make it a more effective instrument for peace, to develop it into a genuine world security system, a system capable of resolving disputes on the basis of law, of ensuring the security of the large and the small, and of creating conditions under which arms can finally be abolished. And then he promised we'd never start a war. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Yeah, so keep in mind, I mean, this is a guy who, who fought in World War II, whose, whose uh, PT ship was you know, cut in half, and or blown up and then you know rescued his guys and was you know, stuck in the pacific i mean he he <laughs> this is a guy who really knew war from a generation that knew war his older brother joe kennedy who was supposed to be president uh run for president at least in his dad's mind uh, his older brother was killed in world war ii so this was somebody who understood what he was speaking of we shall be prepared if others wish it we shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. There you go. So, uh, yeah, you can. I know there, there are there are going to be cynics who are going to say, yeah, he was saying that while he was trying to kill Castro and he was sending some soldiers into Vietnam. Sure. You can be as, as cynical as you wish. And yet. He began the conversation. And he was actually trying to work out peace with Castro. And he did avoid a world war with Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is not to deify John Kennedy. In fact, it's not even to really comment on his presidency. Because, you know, he had his share of screw-ups. He, I mean, he was certainly no George W. Bush. Oh, yeah, let's have a war. Let's just bomb some people. You know, that's night and day. But the point is that, I mean, this is sort of like, you know, Obama's speech the other day about, about you know, no longer contributing to global warming and then saying, but natural gas is wonderful without mentioning fracking. You can take a cynical response to it. You can say, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, good words, but, but the fact of the matter is that at least the conversation has been joined. Instead of having a president who is constantly telling us to be afraid, 
as Richard Nixon had done during the Cold War, back when he was president and before that when he was vice president. Be afraid of the Soviets. Be afraid of the Vietnamese. Be afraid of the Chinese. Be afraid of, you know, you know duck and cover. Be afraid. George W. Bush, be afraid of the Muslims. Start a crusade. They want to build a caliphate. Oh, my God, look out. Instead of having a president who's saying, be afraid, John Kennedy was saying, no, we can be the land of the free and the home of the brave. We can stand strong and advocate for peace. There have been times during this, during the history, uh, during our lifetimes, specifically during the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, John Yu, J. Bybee, Alberto Gonzalez, Condoleezza Rice, war criminal administration, when people who spoke out in favor of peace were, you know, actively booted off the air. Bill Donahue out of MSNBC. Bill Maher thrown off, I think it was ABC. Simply because they said war? You really want a war? No, I don't think so. So let's engage the conversation. Let's engage the conversation about peace. Let's engage the conversation about global warming. Let's begin. What is it gonna be? Love or gin? Wife or sin? This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics for me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, drop me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Well, more curious history in the New York Times, this time in a July 16th piece about how Barack Obama uses his power quietly, opting for something called a hidden hand approach, similar to Dwight Eisenhower. Apparently, both presidents steered clear of major international conflicts. The Times explained it this way, quote, just as Eisenhower, the 34th president, pulled troops out of Korea and avoided other military adventures, Mr. Obama has pulled out of Iraq, is leaving Afghanistan, has limited intervention in Libya largely to airstrikes, and has resisted being drawn directly into the civil war in Syria. Close quote. Well, let's try a rewrite. Obama wanted to keep additional troops in Iraq. The withdrawal that happened was on a schedule he inherited from George W. Bush. To say that Obama is leaving Afghanistan obscures the fact that he massively escalated the war there, tripling the number of U.S. troops in the first two years of his term. And, of course, there are the ongoing drone wars in countries like Yemen, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. As for Eisenhower, the Times refers vaguely to covert operations on his watch. That could be a reference to the CIA's role in overthrowing governments in Iran, Guatemala, and Congo, or that it was deeply involved in supporting anti-government rebels in Indonesia, fighting the Sukarno government. That included dropping supplies to the rebels. His hands may have been hidden, but there's no reason to conceal this history 50 years later, or to mislead readers about the present administration, for that matter.
pieces And when the cries of starvation Are echoing Through the guts of a nation That's bloated with spoils of war Was it worth fighting for? If you're privileged, after all, if you're the top dog, if you have all the advantage, you're constantly afraid of who's gaining on you. You're constantly afraid of who's coming to take what you have. We've got to close the border. They're coming to take our stuff. We've got to worry about terrorists. They're coming to take our stuff. We've got to get them before they get us. Preventative war. We've got to stop them. That's what privilege will do for you, because those who have it are constantly anxious. A study in June of 2004 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which received very little attention, found that in the United States, the rates of anxiety disorder, depression, and substance abuse-related mental disorders are twice the global average, five times the rate in Nigeria. How is it that the most powerful and privileged people on Earth can have so much more anxiety than people who live in war-torn areas? Civil war, political corruption, amazing problems, often famine, all kinds of hardships that for the most part we don't see, at least in the same abundance, let's say, <clears throat> in the United States. And yet it's here that the greatest level of anxiety, I would suggest that the reason that happens is because it's the privilege that generates the anxiety. It's that constant fear of keeping up and staying ahead that generates the anxiety, the mentality of entitlement. The mentality that says, this is our world and we get to make the rules in this world. And then we come to find out not so much. And we don't deal with setback very well, those who are the dominant group. And then when the real world intrudes on us, it's like a psychological come apart, like a meltdown. So when those people in Littleton, Colorado had their school shot up at Columbine, or when the folks in Santee, California, Santana High School, Springfield, Oregon, Thurston High School, all of those nice white spaces which from the mid-90s to the early 2000s seemed like at least once or twice a year there was another one of these mass school shootings and almost every single one of them committed by a white male of upper middle class background in a place where everyone said this wasn't supposed to happen here because privilege allowed them to let down their guard to the dysfunction and pathology that they thought only existed over there so we don't notice that Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris are building 35 bombs in the basement. Because privilege means I don't even have to know what my kids are doing. I ain't seen them in like a week. I'm taking classes at Home Depot. No kids of color could have gotten away with that. 35 bombs in what basement? A. B. If folks of color roll up to the Ace Hardware looking for bomb supplies, they are not going to be sold them. But these white middle class folks drive up in nice cars looking to get some pipe bomb material, some explosives, some real short fuses. And it's, oh, it's for a science fair experiment. Sure, here, you know. All right, privilege. Usually it works out pretty well. 364 days out of the year, it goes okay. But if day 365 is April 20th of 1999 and your kid goes to Columbine High School, you really don't care much about the other 364. Because when you have that privilege of living in that bubble and you don't have to think about what you don't have to think about, remember, there may come a time when you have to think about it. When 9-11 happened, notice the different ways that white folks and folks of color by and large reacted. Everybody was scared. Everybody was angry. Everybody was upset. Everybody's freaking out. But now... There were only some folks who went in front of microphones 
and said the following, and they were all white, that I saw. Why do they hate us? Why? Why? Why would anyone hate the United States of America? I don't get it. See, people of color, they didn't say this. And it's not because folks of color hate this country, but folks of color have, historically, a love-hate relationship with the society. Loving certain things about it, hating other things about it, but here's the more important point. To be a person of color in this country is to always have to know what the other guy thinks. It is to always have to know what other people think about you, because if you don't, if you for one minute forget what other people might think about you, your life is in danger. But to be the dominant group is to have that luxury, or to think you do, to think you do, of not having to care what other people think. Because you're the big dog. You're the top. You're the king of the hill. You don't have to worry about what other people think. That's privilege. You don't have to know. You can sort of laugh it off. At least we thought we could. We could have that attitude that says, <laughs> well, you know, what are you going to do to us? We're big and bad. We spend $400 billion a year on defense, fool. If you come for us, we will bomb you back to the Stone Age. And if you're already there, we'll take you back to whatever the hell came before the Stone Age. Because we can. And then 19 guys with $37 worth of box cutters, $1,000 worth of plane tickets, and a pissy attitude pretty much said, mm, okay, I'll tell you what. You spend your $400 billion a year on defense, and here's the deal. Me and my boys are bringing these buildings down anyway. How do you like us now? So privilege didn't allow us to see that the rest of the world doesn't view us the way we view us. Maybe we'd have been better off knowing that. Maybe we would have been better off for decades knowing that the rest of the world doesn't view us in the same liberatory terms that we sometimes view ourselves. Now, people of color in this country already knew better. Because when they asked white folks and black folks before the invasion of Iraq, good idea, bad idea, the folks without privilege said, mm-mm. Black folks were just like overwhelming. No, no. <laughs> they asked white folks, and two-thirds of white America said, hell yes, we must do this. They're going to greet us like liberators. See, that's privilege speaking. Privilege says, surely they know we're liberated. Surely they know. Rumsfeld said we're going to be greeted like liberators. Dick Cheney said it. They know so much about combat. Surely this will work out well. People of color, mm, no. Because folks of color know that even if you don't have very much, folks without much will kill you for the little bit they have. Or you could invade Washington Heights tonight, but I don't recommend it. You could invade the South Bronx tonight, but I do not recommend it. Because the folks who were there may know full well they don't have much. But they will indeed kill you to keep what little bit they have. And see, victims have long memories. And so the people we claim to be liberating don't forget that their oppression came at the hands of a man that we supported all of those years. They don't forget that. But those who create that victimization have short memories. We have the luxury of forgetting, so we go in because privilege says it'll work. Privilege says it'll work. Privilege says it will work. And then we come to find out maybe it doesn't work as well as we thought. And maybe we should have listened to the folks without privilege who know a little bit more about how oppressed people respond to invasion. Invasion doesn't bring liberation, and black and brown folk know it. They've been there. They've done that. But the privilege had this luxury, and I remember three days into the war, getting an email from a guy who was angry at me for having written some anti-war essays, 
And 72 hours in, he's writing me an email, and he's saying, see? <laughs> 72 hours into the way. This is what, what kind of channel surfing culture we are. Three days of war, and we're winning, so it's cool, you know. See, and this is what he said, he said, see, you dirty, stinky, no-bath-taking, Birkenstock-wearing, hippie, anarchist, communist, you were wrong. I said, really? How do you know that we were wrong? Well, because it's going, look, we're winning. It's go they love us. <laughs> I said, really? How do you know that they love us? And he said, well, I opened the paper today and there was this great AP photograph right there on the front page of a little Iraqi kid giving the thumbs up to the soldiers, our soldiers. See? So they love us. They are greeting us like liberators. You all were wrong. I said, okay, and I'll tell you or I'll ask you what I asked him. Again, a cultural competence quiz. What do you think this means in Iraq? <laughs> do you know what this means throughout the so-called Middle East and much of North Africa, Egypt up? It does not mean, keep up the good work. I love what you do. This instead is the functional equivalent of flipping you off. So this five-year-old child is punking our entire nation. <laughs> but we don't know it because we don't have to know it, but maybe we should have known it. Because now you see that five-year-old with the thumbs up and we say, see, it's working. We've got to do more of this. And though I'm making light of it, I'm doing it only because sometimes you have to laugh at the absurdity of this system so as not to cry. There are thousands of parents in this country and hundreds of thousands in Iraq and in Afghanistan who are going to be burying, have already buried their children and are going to continue to bury their children this week and next week and the week after that and the month after that and the month after that and to hear the politicians in this country tell it for years. They're going to keep burying their kids because of this hubris, because of this privileged mentality of entitlement that says the world is ours to shape in our image, that we have the right to make it over and everyone else will bow before our superior firepower and the rest of the world has, in case you have not noticed, pretty much called bullshit on that. So at some point, we better worry about privilege, not just because of what it does to the ones without it, but what it does to us. Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, um, I just wanted to call and respond to uh, Pete from Chicago. This is Peter out in Chicago. I'm replying to the caller, Chris from Colorado Springs. First of all, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. This is such an important topic. And Peter made some, some pretty good points. And I think your response to them about free speech and what Lindy said and then what Elon said and how jokes are framed... You, you did that way better than I could have, so I apologize to everybody for not being as concise and um, succinct as I could have been or should have been about that, because it is, it's a complicated issue. And Peter, I, I, the First Amendment, I did not mean to, to step on it at all. Um, and I think what Jay pointed out was kind of what I meant. Freedom of speech literally has nothing to do with comedy. The idea of freedom of speech 
in America has to do with the government not being allowed to oppress people's speech. It has nothing to do with one person telling a bad joke and another person saying, that was a terrible joke, you should stop that. Uh, that's not silencing someone, that's not taking away their free speech, even a little bit. What, what I wanted to respond to what Peter said was about the whole Wayne LaPierre thing. How is that argument that it might make a rapist feel good any different from Wayne LaPierre's insistence that violent video games cause mass shootings? Uh, some murderer might play a video game and say, hey, this is okay, this is entertainment, and they'll go out and perpetuate murder culture. Do you get how asinine that argument is? Because when he said that, I was like, man, that's a great point, because I hate when Wayne, Wayne LaPierre did that. But then the more I sat here and I thought about it, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I think we're making a false connection here. The difference is, Wayne LaPierre is saying that violent video games cause violence, and they might, in a minute, tiny, microscopic portion of the population, or maybe not even cause it, they may contribute to violence. The thing is, rape and sexual assault and the overall degradation of our female counterparts, speaking as man, is rampant, is everywhere. Now, if we had a school shooting or a mass shooting or teenagers pretending they're in Call of Duty or House of Dead or whatever, if we had that happening all the time, then you might have a point. Yeah, Peter, you might have a point that, or Wayne LaPierre might have a point, that it's these violent video games. The simple fact of the matter is most of the violence is surrounded around drugs and around crime. It doesn't really have anything to do with anybody playing Call of Duty. It just has to do with, with poverty and, and a whole lot of other issues, not video games. There might be that one kid out there who's isolated and alone and plays those video games all the time, and that might send him over the edge. But when comics are out there telling rape jokes, and the statistical fact of the matter is that a huge portion of their female audience has probably been sexually assaulted, and a sizable portion, a double-digit percentage of the men in their audience, probably had committed a sex act against a woman. So I think that's the difference with that analogy. But I mean, I'm again, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Um, I think it's important, and it's one of these icky, sicky situations that, especially as a man, I find it difficult sometimes to properly talk about it because you know it's a, it, it's an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing that to be discussing, but it's so important, you know. And as a father, as somebody who respects women, it's it's extremely important. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. But thanks. Keep it up. Like, Hey, Jay, this is Aaron from Kansas. I've been wanting to call in for about the past week with uh, just some of my feelings after the Trayvon Martin trial, well, the George Zimmerman trial. I've been waiting because I'm just trying to get my feelings together, and I tried typing out how I feel, but ended up just being kind of a long rant. So uh, here it goes. The past week, I've been feeling a sense of sadness, frustration, and honestly, quite upset. Being a person of color, living in a red state, I've always been aware of of the racial subjects, but my family always raised me to believe that race is not an issue. As I grew up, I began to notice these subtle nuances of racial divide in my surroundings. Looking back and seeing what is going on around me today, I see that racism is still alive, and although it may be subtle and well-hidden, it is still strong. The Zimmerman trial has brought to attention the fact that there is such a thing as white privilege. The fact that Trayvon Martin has viewed, was viewed as suspicious because of what he was wearing and where he was shows this idea that people of color do not belong in certain areas. And the fact that he was killed shows that the idea that the lives of black folks are not as valuable as those of others. 
now I understand that Zimmerman is not actually white, but that he is Hispanic. For me, this shows that the issue of race in America is much deeper than white and black, but that racism has been indoctrinated into our culture for so long in such a way that the sphere of a black man is universal and that the lifestyle that they lead is so harmful that they deserve to be killed. What I have found is that many people simply do not understand these ideas. They can't see how race played such a huge part in this trial or how it is still present. The very fact that these people can't see this illustrates that there is such a thing as white privilege. It can be seen how they confront this issue. They say that racism is over and that we live in a post-racial world when the truth is racism is not over. It has found a way to hide in today's world through political agendas, the Department of Corrections, extremist religious institutions, and portions of the education system. The idea that racism is over is, is a sort of wish or dream. The people that don't believe that racism exists are those that don't have to deal with it. They're not confronted with it. The comments that Obama made on Friday were slightly uplifting. In his message, he spoke of how we need to learn something from the situation and move forward, and how we need to do some soul-searching. But in the same breath, he spoke of how we now live in a post-racial society. As Michael Eric Dyson put it, one black man living in public housing in Washington, D.C. doesn't mean all the problems for black people are solved. The problems we face now is what to do moving forward. How can we move forward? Organizing for any sort of justice makes, it, makes us look like an unruly mob to the public. Any public speaking of our concerns or ideas is viewed as, viewed as a declaration of war on white people. I feel that for now, we are stuck in this situation where we must live with the ideas that our lives are not valued as much as those of others. I was never given the race speech from my parents, but I'm fearing that I might have to give it to my children. This makes me so upset. I do not want my children to have to live in a world where they fear living or have to abide by a certain code so that they do not appear to be a threat. But I want to move forward and I want to have a dialogue about race and find ways to move past the situation. But I feel so many people are not willing to do so. People that I once thought were friends of mine have been very outspoken on their views of the Zimmerman trial on social media. It is hard to have this discussion when their views are Trayvon Martin got his justice when he got shot in the heart. And then they proceed to laugh at my remarks as I try to be someone that they must face instead of being unaccountable for, for what they're saying. But so many people just can't see it. I'm not sure what to do or what else to say. I've tried to give myself some time to calm down a bit during the past week because I was going to call sooner, but I had so many feelings and just blended it down to a sort of rage. Now I just feel a sort of numbness and I don't know what to do or where to go or where we even go as a nation. What do you do when you feel that your voice is being silenced and that you have no value? I welcome a discussion on this because I'm finding that I'm not getting any civil discussion around here. Thanks for taking my call and uh, thanks for the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I just want to read a, a, a voicemail that came in. It's uh, from Javier, who just felt more comfortable uh, writing an email rather than calling into the voicemail line. So the subject of his headline is, I'm a white Hispanic like Zimmerman. 
And so uh, Javier says, I just wanted to write in since all this discussion of white privilege has been intersecting with the recent news in the Zimmerman trial, and I feel like I might be able to lend some personal insight. Many of the opinion makers and manipulators out there are trying to say this murder was not about race because Zimmerman is vaguely Hispanic. Oh, us Hispanics can be all sorts of racist, trust me. I personally grew up in Mexico, and many a teacher told us that black slaves were brought to Mexico to serve as an example on how to be a good slave since they were not as noble and strong-willed as our native population. So imagine my shock when I realize that I am the beneficiary of white privilege. Sure, I may have white skin, but I came to the country with only $500 in my pocket and two pairs of jeans. I'm an immigrant. I'm the lowest of the low, the new slave class. Yet somehow I can get on a train in Boston with a pressure cooker-sized backpack walking past a half dozen guards with no problem. I can beat out candidates who have a degree if I get a face-to-face -face interview, and in many of my past jobs, customers have pointed to me and said, I want to talk to that guy. Give me a suit, and people assume I'm in charge. Also, give me five minutes, and I'll name drop Mexico, repeatedly. I'll pronounce my name with as many R's as I can fit into it. I will sing in Spanish, on purpose, while working. I will introduce myself as Mexican with an American citizenship. Us white Hispanics are expected to assimilate and distance ourselves from undocumented immigrants. We are supposed to lose our accents and sing praises about the American dream making us wealthy. You know, so that we can become like the next Italians or Irish. But for me, the American dream is about equality and opportunity for all. When the verdict in Trayvon Martin's murder came down, it was the patriotic part of me that got seriously ill. For me, the American dream is not about assimilate and you can get away with murder. I'm not interested in exploiting an institutional advantage over those darker skinned than I. I want everyone to be better off. I aspire to be Cesar Chavez, not Marco Rubio. And yeah, I've had my share of problems. I've been double screened based on my passport, or been called a wetback or beaner while working in kitchens. I've had people ask what country my call center is in when they hear my name, but for those who see me, I'm white, and that means I've never been stopped and frisked, I've never been accused of shoplifting, I've been given rides and directions and help I did not ask for. I'm not interested in a free ride on the backs of those who do not have the option to assimilate. So thanks to Javier for writing in. I, I think he's definitely right <laughs> to, to think that he had some valuable uh, personal insight to add to that discussion. And so now before I go, I just want to mention that uh, new bonus content is going up on a semi-regular basis for those members who help support the show. Uh, the most recent one I put up uh, was a discussion about sort of the difference between people who st uh, strategically look at politics and people who just look at politics and you know, say what they think is true. It came from a, a semi-interesting story in, in my personal life from a few months ago where I had a very short interaction with someone of the strategic persuasion, whereas I just think like, hey, let's have a conversation. What do you think? And and this person wasn't really willing to have an honest conversation with me for fear of how that might impact the strategy uh, of their politics. So I, I tell that story in the most recent uh, bonus content episode, which of course is available to all members. Sign up to become a member at bestoftheleft.com and you'll get all the details on that as soon as I can get it to you. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially, of course, to those uh, members and one-time donors who help keep the show going. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this 
has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And 